0: The scripture today is going to be from John 1, verses 43 through um, 51, if you would stand for the reading of the word. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The word of the Lord. You may have a seat.
1: Well, I want to say hi to uh, everyone here on campus. Uh, Those of you who are joining us online, great to have uh, you with us as well. Uh, And for those of you who I've heard stories uh, who are joining, not here just in Orlando, but those around our country and around our world, thanks so much for uh, tuning in and joining us uh, here in Orlando. Great to be together this morning. If you're here on campus and if you want to remove your mask, uh, feel free to do so uh, during our sermon time, Uh, but it's wonderful to be together this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, we have been in a sermon series called Unlikely Followers. Uh, we're be looking at these unlikely characters who had a transforming encounter with this man named Jesus. Uh, and today we're going to look at the impact that Jesus Christ had on this man named Nathaniel uh, from this passage that was read earlier. And what we see from Nathaniel is that he is struggling with the claims of Christianity and the claims of this Jesus from Nazareth. So in many ways, Nathaniel is really a picture of someone living in our modern world uh, in the country that we live in now in our culture, struggling with faith, struggling uh, with doubts and what to make of this man, Jesus. Uh, People who, who want some spiritual reality to their life, but they struggle with the claims of Christianity. That's what we're going to see in this encounter with Jesus today and Nathaniel and some of the questions and some of the issues that Nathaniel faces, uh, that we can bring to faith in our modern world. So there's three invitations this morning. We need to see, uh, from Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus first come and see second, behold the King. And lastly, grab the ladder. Come and see, behold the king, grab the ladder. We'll look at all these invitations and how we make sense of faith uh, in our day. And first, come and see. Uh, We find it in this passage that Philip has had an encounter with Jesus uh, previously. And he has come now to tell Nathaniel about this encounter in verse 45. And Nathaniel's reaction to Philip, these claims about Jesus, we see his reaction in verse 46. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a skeptic's response. Uh, he, he struggles with the claims that Philip is making about Jesus. And Nathaniel actually offers a very valid critique to Christianity when he asks this question, can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, uh, for everyone who uh, lived in Israel at this time, they, they knew the long-awaited Messiah would come from the line of David and would come from the city of Bethlehem. Uh, this is what was clear through the Hebrew Bible. So when Philip says to Nathaniel, this is the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, Nathaniel rightly articulates that this is his question of doubt. He struggles with Philip's assertion. But notice Philip's response. Uh, no, notice Philip doesn't respond to Nathaniel and say, why don't you get it? Why haven't you figured it out by now? Why are you asking me this stupid question? He doesn't say that. He just invites him to lean in to lean in with his question, to lean in with his doubt. He invites him to come and see, come and examine the evidence. You see, we sometimes have this thought in our modern culture when we think of thought, when we think of believing in Christianity, that it's really this practice that we do without any sort of rational thought at all. Um, it, it, we come to it without any investigation we're, we're supposed to just, it's supposed to happen with subjective winds, just bury your head in the sand. Uh, many in our modern culture think Christianity is meant to be anti-intellectual, uh, but not what we see in the picture of this passage. Uh, we're encouraged to examine the claims of Christianity to bring our doubts and issues to the investigation to come and see. Uh, this is the claim that Dr. Peter J. Williams makes. Uh, he's a new Testament scholar uh, his PhD is from Cambridge University, and he just wrote a book that came out recently called "Can We Trust the Gospels?" It's a great book. And in the book, at the very beginning of the book, he makes this assertion uh, that today, when we speak of faith in our modern world, what we're talking about is to believe in something not based on any evidence at all. Uh, the best story I can think of in my own life is uh, when I went away to college. Uh, you had you were required maybe maybe not you but at my secular university you were required to take some religion course. And so I signed up for the intro to New Testament class. And if anyone has ever taken any sort of religion course on a secular university, you know that (laughs) there's not much faith involved in that practice. And the first day of class, we walk into class, the bell rings, we sit down and the professor's very first words to us on that very first day of class were this. He said this in this class. If you are a person of faith, I will need you to leave your faith at the door. And only come into this class looking at the evidence. That's what, that's what many people in our modern world think of when they think of faith. That this is what this professor is implying. He says faith is this arbitrary subjective experience that's not really based on reason. Not based on any facts. Not based on investigation. Uh, but Dr. Peter Williams tells us in his book that the word faith, it actually comes uh, from the Latin word fides, which really means more uh, equivalent to trust. And he trusts, he says, should be based on evidence. It should be based on reason. It should be based on facts. Uh, he, Williams goes on in the book and he basically says, there are areas of our life where trust is always happening and it should happen. And this is what he says, most of us regularly place our personal safety in the hands of others. Uh, we trust food suppliers, civil engineers, and car manufacturers literally with our lives. We also depend on friends, social media, and financial services. Of course, our trust is not absolute and unquestioning. If we see flagrant breaches of hygiene in a restaurant, we would probably stop eating there. But trust is still something we exercise daily. We place qualified trust in news sources, both for information that affects our lives and for the information that does not. It is a version of that every day sort of trust that we are going to consider when examining the accounts of Jesus' life. Williams is saying that we live our lives marked by trust. We're we're always trusting in something. But he says we need to bring that same examination, that same trust and how we apply the Gospels. He essentially says, come and see. Come and see. Now, I know there's someone here who's probably thinking, uh, well, we can't trust the Bible, Tyler. It's just a bunch of legends and myths. I mean, mean, these these stories that were told about Jesus written way, way after uh, his life. We we can't really trust these. Maybe that's you this morning. Uh, But this is the picture that we get from the Bible, and it's completely different. You see, these writers uh, were reporting their eyewitness testimonies about their encounters with this man named Jesus. Uh, Throughout John 1, uh, we find these encounters that people bore witness. They testify to those encounters, those eyewitness stories of Jesus. In fact, that word for testify uh, of testifying about Jesus, the same word used for testifying in the court of law in the first century. The writers of the Gospels and particularly John were focusing on uh, this life of Jesus. And they're basically saying this. Here's what we saw. Here's what we saw when we saw this man walk before us. I mean, just look at this previous section, just before our passage on Nathaniel. uh, This is what we read about an encounter with Jesus. John records this. So the disciples came and saw where Jesus was staying and they, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now the 10th hour is 4 PM for us, but why this attention to detail? Peter Williams would tell us, it's because these are eyewitness testimonies, not legends. In fact, this kind of detail does not exist in ancient legends or myths. Uh, We we see um, our modern fiction, our modern uh, stories that we tell, the novels that we read uh, appear like factual stories, but that's not what ancient legends looked like around the time of the New Testament. They weren't written that way. You cannot find a legend or a myth around the time of Jesus in the first century that said, so they stayed with him because it was four in the afternoon. You won't find that. John is recording for us his experience, what he saw with his eyes, what he touched with his hands. This is how John begins uh, his letter he wrote called 1 John. The very beginning, this is what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He's talking about Jesus. We have seen him. We have touched him. John is telling us, I have examined the evidence. I've investigated. I saw, I touched, and this is my report. You see, the Greek word for proclaim here is report. John doesn't say once upon a time. He doesn't begin his gospel a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He essentially says, these aren't legends. I saw him. I touched him. He is everything I thought he would be. These are the facts. This is what I observed. Come and see. Come and see. C.S. Lewis uh, was a skeptic to Christianity uh, before he investigated the claims about Jesus. And he wrote widely in his lifetime to defend the Christian faith. Uh, But many people don't know this about Lewis, that Lewis was actually a professor professor of literature at Oxford and Cambridge University. Uh, Lewis uh, was a scholar in medieval literature. And this is what Lewis wrote in response to the idea that the New Testament is just a book of legends or myths. He wrote this. We turn to the Gospel of John. Read the dialogues, that with the Samaritan woman at the well, or that which follows the healing of the man born blind. Look at the pictures, Jesus doodling with his finger in the dust. I have been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends, myths, all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage of facts or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. If you wonder what a smug English professor sounds like, that's it right there. Lewis is essentially saying this. If, if you reject this as reporters of facts, you simply don't know how to read. Um, now, I'm not here to defend Lewis. I'm not here to defend Lewis at all. But I do think Lewis is trying to tell us something that we must be aware of when we indict the Bible of legend or myth. You see, uh, we are all invited to come and see Christian, non-Christian all invited to come and see, and we have to make a decision about the evidence and the claims of Jesus, but we cannot, what we can't do when we examine these claims is sit in the middle. Uh, 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 We we can't say, "Well, well, I like Jesus seemed like he loved people, seemed like a good man cared for a lot of people, but most of it's a myth. The Bible does not give us that option. Uh, even in this passage, we see Philip's invitation to Nathanael. Uh, Philip in- investigated the evidence. He, he looked at the facts, and this was his response when he uh, had this encounter with Jesus. This is what Philip said. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip makes these claims. Jesus is the savior of the world. He, he, he is the one to whom all of history has been pointing. He is the way. This morning, either Jesus is who he says he is, or he is a liar and deceiver of the greatest level, and you should have absolutely nothing to do with him, but you cannot sit in the middle. I know there are things that are hard to understand about the Bible and about Jesus. There are doubts that bother me at times. There are questions that I do not have answers to. But how do I make sense of the explosion of Christianity in the ancient world, which is testified even outside the Bible by Josephus and Pliny and many others? How do I make sense of the explosion of a faith centered on a man who claimed to be God when every other movement with a figure who claimed to be God was always stuffed out? I mean, have you heard of David Koresh? We are all invited this morning to come and see. Come and see. Have you? Second, we have to see we are invited to behold the king. Now why do I say this? Well, in verse 49 of our passage of today, uh, Nathaniel actually examined the evidence. He went and he investigated. He looked at the facts, and it led him to a transforming encounter with Jesus. This is what we read in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, "Uh, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, Nathanael sees Jesus as a respected Jewish scholar. That's why he calls him a rabbi. But then Nathanael makes the audacious claim. He says, you are the king. Uh, You are the long awaited Messiah. This is what the word son of God uh, meant in the Old Testament, that they were waiting for the Messiah who would come and set all things right. Uh, the king above all kings who, who we would look to, who would, who would make this world a better place, who would wipe away all tears. And we see multiple places in the old Testament where this Messiah, this son of God is referred to who will come second Samuel seven fourteen, Psalm two, seven, or just a couple of those passages. You see the first step to beholding the king is we would have to say, Jesus, you have the authority, you have the authority. It's to be able to say, like, Nathaniel, you are the king. Uh, You deserve the allegiance. Your way goes. Uh, This is actually a really hard concept for us to to really get in our modern culture. Because uh, we we don't grasp the seriousness uh, that someone from a traditional or more ancient culture would have who lived under the allegiance of a king. Uh, And where we see that is uh, actually over the last three or four cycles of our president. Presidents of the United States. I've heard many different phrases. Uh, You're basically allowed to say whatever you want to about the president these days. I've heard phrases like, not my president. Uh, This president's the Antichrist. This president's a joke. Just a few over the last several presidents that we have had serve here. But the reality is in cultures that have a king to make those kind of statements would have gotten you killed. There is an understanding that if you are king... If Jesus is the king, you have the ultimate reality. You have the ultimate authority over reality. The other implication you're saying, when you say Jesus, you have the authority. The other implication that you would have made in this first century is who is not king for Nathaniel to say, Jesus, you are king. You have the authority. You are the long awaited Messiah that we have been praying for is to say that Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee right there where he was living was not king. It was to say Tiberius Caesar, who ruled all the known world, including Israel at this time, was not the true authority. It's to look at your life and say, who is the king? The decisions you make, the life you are living, for you to say, Jesus, you have the authority. Uh, I've found that in our household, dinner time and actually getting our kids to eat their dinner is a battle for authority. Uh, Sometimes I feel like a hostage negotiator uh, trying to work out plea deals, trying to meet demands of uh, those who are terrorists trying to take over. (laughs) And at other times I feel like the hostage just waiting for this nightmare to be over. And if you're a parent, you've been there. And what I've found, at least with my kids, is there there are two postures for looking to claim authority. Two postures. Uh, one's the, the more outspoken attempt, and the other is the more passive aggressive one. I'll explain. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were sitting, attempting to have a dinner as a family, and uh, our Caleb, our youngest, uh, was pretty disappointed with the dinner plate that was before him. And he said, decided to voice his disapproval. And we began to instruct him about the importance of dinner, how, how this, this dinner was very healthy, and why he should eat it, but his disapproval only grew. At which point I responded, Caleb, who is in charge? Who are you supposed to listen to? His response to who is in charge, he said, Caleb. (laughs) He did not flinch. He did not hesitate. He simply stated his reality despite the sheer audacity of his claim. But what you find here is the more outspoken one, they have no problem voicing their disapproval. No problem voicing their displeasure with who is the true authority. Uh, But what I found also is there is the more passive aggressive one in our midst. You see, after I explained to Caleb that he was wrong and that mommy and daddy are in charge, one of our other kids without flinching, without hesitation commented, uh, well, God is actually in charge. Yes, thanks, jerk. (laughs) Of course, I said, yes, you are right. Yes, God is in charge, but he has given responsibility to mommy and daddy. But what is underneath my kids passive aggressive statement in that moment? It is essentially this. I do not want to listen to you, mommy, daddy, and I do not want to eat that dinner that is before me. We have an issue with Jesus' authority. As much as anyone, I struggle with this in my own life, but for Jesus to have the authority, for you to behold the King, it will have implications on your life. How you view your work during the week, uh, how you care for your spouse, how you shepherd your kids, how you live out your singleness, um, how you follow Jesus at your school as a student how you navigate your chronic illness, how you forgive that person. The implications for beholding this king are swift. We cannot say, uh, okay, God, uh, you can have some authority over this area of life, but I'll hold on to this part of it. Thank you very much. So that's the first step to beholding the king is we have to say, Jesus, you have the authority. You have the authority. Have you done that? How, how will it change your finances? Um, how would it change your church involvement? How would it change your marriage? How would it change your life? The second step to beholding the king is confessing our treason. Now, why do I say that? What do I mean? We, we have to admit that we have usurped the king at times in our life. We want control. We, we want to be the charge. We want to call the shot. Sometimes we have frankly said, uh, God, you obviously don't know what you're doing. So I'll take it over from here. Don't you see in a thousand different ways we have said, you may be king, just not my king. We are sitting on the throne of our lives, but this is called treason, especially when the king is not simply the king of a country, but he is the king as Nathaniel has declared the king of the entire universe. That's what Nathaniel declares. He is the perfect king and we have violated his authority. And we can't stand before him. Honestly, Caleb's heart over dinner is the heart that we all feel. Who's in charge? Who, is, who am I supposed to listen to? Our, lay, our lives in many ways reveal the answer. They reveal the answer. My life, my, my life reveals the answer. But this step to beholden the king is us actually getting very honest with ourselves. It's us admitting that we have usurped the throne. It's confessing our treason. Uh, the Greek word for confess is homilegeo, and it literally means same word, same word. That we would say the same word, that God is saying and that we are saying the same word, the same thing. God is holy in his perfection, in his rightful claim as the authority and king of all the universe, and that we are not king, and that we have usurped his authority. On the throne. Uh, This is the story we read in the book of Job. Uh, Job questioned God's kingship. He questions how God has dealt with him in his life. But nowhere does God uh, respond to Job, you know, Job, you actually make some really valid arguments. (laughs) Actually, what we read is God explaining the problem to Job. And here's how God begins his response. He says this in chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God then spends the next two chapters in the book of Job explaining his greatness that he is king and there is no other. And this is what we read in chapter 40 in the book of Job. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job arrived at the only place that we can, our hand on our mouth. Don't you see the issue? We have to acknowledge God is king. That's the only way we can make sense of this world, that he is the rightful authority. Without him, there's, there's no meaning to life, there's no purpose to life. We have to have him be king. But when we acknowledge that he is king, we see the gaps. We, we see our grasp for control, our longing for sovereignty. We, we see that we, as a person, we've been trying to sit on the throne of our life. And like Job, we're under judgment. Uh, Our our hands are stopped. Our our mouths are over. Our hands are on our mouth. We see the gap between us and God. The chasm between heaven and earth. Do you see this issue? We need a king. We need a rightful king over all authority. But then once we acknowledge him, we see our treason. That we've tried to live as king. Well, that brings us to the last invitation. How do we get out of this? Nathaniel actually tells us. Grab the ladder, grab the ladder. Now, I know someone's probably thinking, Tyler, I have no idea what you're talking about. That passage that you just read talks nothing at all about a ladder. Well, in this passage, Nathaniel beholds the king. And Jesus responds by essentially saying to him, you think I'm the king because I had some supernatural knowledge? That's uh, essentially what Jesus is getting at. Verse 50, he says, you think I'm king because I was able to tell you you were under a fig tree? You think that's why I'm king? And Jesus goes on. He says, I'm not king because I know things about you. I'm king because I'm the only one who can save you. I'm the only one who can bridge the gap. I am the ladder." This is what he's getting at in verse 51. We'll have to look at it a little bit. He says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This passage is incredibly cryptic for us in our modern world, but for our first century Jew who heard it, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. You see, Jesus is referring here uh, to a very important character in Israel's story named Jacob. Jacob had just cheated his brother um, Esau and God revealed to Jacob while he's on the run for his life. God reveals himself to him. God reveals himself to Jacob, how he will solve his rebellion and his uh, disobedience, how he'll solve our treason issue a ladder, a ladder. This is what it says in Genesis. Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And Jacob dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and its top reached into heaven. And Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Genesis tells us God will establish a ladder between heaven and earth to fix the chasm, to save those who have confessed their treason, to repair their relationship, to set all things right. God is telling Jacob, one day you will find angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and that's how you will know everything and all creation has been set right. This is how you will know despite your treason, despite what has happened, you have been saved. This is how I will do it. Jesus declares an incredibly provocative statement in John. He says this, I am the ultimate, really, I'm the ultimate ladder to which all reality has been pointing. I'm the one who has come down out of heaven to bridge the gap, to bridge the chasm. I am the only one who can save you. And the implications for Jacob's story and Jesus's proclamation ring out in our lives. The first implication is there is a Bethel reality a Bethel reality. What do I mean? At the end of Jacob's encounter with God in the stream, he wakes up and he calls the place Bethel. Uh, he, he, he wakes up, he calls the place Bethel. And, and what we see is Bethel means house of God in Genesis 20, uh, 28, 16, uh, Jacob declares this God was in this place and I didn't even know it. I didn't know it. God was here and I didn't know it. There's a Bethel reality. Because of Jesus, the ultimate ladder, there is a new reality to your life. You you see, before Jacob's dream, it tells us in Genesis 28 that Jacob had laid down in a place. And why is it just called a place? It doesn't have a name, at least not yet. You see, there wasn't a creek there. There was no well there. There was nothing of importance in this place. That's why it doesn't have a name. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's on the other side of Pensacola. And what we learn is that the ladder drops down out of heaven. When you see how Jesus Christ has saved you, you can find a Bethel reality in your life. You can find heaven and earth in some of the darkest and most vulnerable places that you may be facing. Or you may be here this morning struggling to make sense of your life. You feel tired. You feel overwhelmed. You feel isolated. You may feel that you don't measure up. But what we know is the ladder comes down to the most desperate of places right there for Jacob. When we are insecure, when the marriage is struggling, when we open our bank statement, we find it's very concerning. When we get the medical report and it does not look good, when the job is not working out, there is a ladder even in that place. Jesus in his presence allows you to have a different perspective, a Bethel reality. God, God was here and I didn't know it. I didn't know it. Secondly, there's a gospel reality. Jesus is telling us, I am the ultimate ladder who comes down out of heaven, not only to every place, but to every person. How do we know this? Because the ladder came down to, of all people, of all people, Jacob. Maybe you don't know this. But Jacob, his name literally means cheater in Hebrew. So I apologize this morning, those on campus, those online, anyone named Jacob. I just outed you and I'm sorry about that. You are a cheater. You see, Jacob is on the run for his life because he has deceived his father and his brother for the birthright of inheritance and blessing. Uh, Jacob is... A scoundrel of all people who should not receive the gospel reality, who should not receive the ladder of salvation from heaven, it is Jacob. What Jesus is saying is this, I'm the ultimate ladder who has come down to save any person, no matter what has happened, no matter what you're going through, if Jacob the scoundrel can get it, so can you. So can you. I know some people who think they are too far gone for what has happened deep in their past to the addiction that they are currently facing, to the secret that they are carrying. The ladder comes down to you regardless of what has happened. What we see is that Jesus is the ladder from heaven that comes down out of sheer grace, sheer grace to us. It's a declaration that to every person, it does not matter what you have done. The ladder is earned, is not earned, it is received. You see, some people think you have to earn it. You've got, you got to work really hard. Not according to this passage. <laughs> the ladder does not come down to Jacob at the end of all of his issues, but right in the middle of all his issues. Whatever place you're in and whatever person you think you are, there is a ladder, Jesus Christ, that comes down out of heaven to bridge the gap for you, to cover your treason, to set us right before the Father. And all you have to do is receive him. All you have to do is grab hold of this ladder. That is all you need. That is all you need. You see, the gospel offers us something very different, incredibly different from every other religion. From every other way of viewing the world. You see, every other religion has a ladder. uh, But it's a ladder that you build your way up to God. It's a ladder you earn. You achieve it. It's a ladder that goes up from earth. You build it. You construct it. But the gospel is a ladder that comes down from heaven. You receive it. You receive it. And when you take hold of this ladder, heaven comes exploding into your world, not about the amount of your faith. I mean, look at Jacob. He's not even looking for God, he's on the run for his life. It's certainly not about the amount of your faith, it's the object. A ladder out of heaven. To you. The chasm has been covered. The bridge has been made. And all you have to do is take hold of this ladder. Jesus Christ is the ultimate ladder, He is the one that we are looking for in a thousand different places. If you're here this morning and you have not grabbed hold of Jesus Christ, The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation for all who would put their trust in him. No matter who you are, receive the grace of God that he longs to give you in Jesus. How he has bridged the chasm, how he has covered our treason. And for those of us who are still thinking we have to earn it, that we have to do it. The gospel declares to us this morning, it is not earned. It is received. It is a ladder out of heaven for you and for me and for all who would come and grab hold of him. That is all you need. Put your trust in him and find heaven exploding into your world right here. Let's pray. Our father, we thank you for this encounter That you had with Nathaniel and with Jacob. This reminder that the gospel comes to us by sheer grace, undeserved, unmerited, solely from you, despite our doubts and our questions, despite our treason, you have bridged the gap. You've set all things right. You are the true king the true King of this universe and of our lives. And we give thanks to you this morning as we seek to apply these truths to our life. And we pray this in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Amen.